Honora, Tenarawa to Koto, Tenakoto, Ihoma, Nakiroto, Tene Fare, Irungi to Kobotera, Katemihia to Kite Manatu Tonga, Mete Forepoko Alte Rone, Narawa to Karanga, Itenewa, Katehoki, Okumaharaki or Tato Chipuna, Kiarato, Hinga to Inga, Napakanga Kato, Katetanga to Tanga Kiarato, Tukau tunga mihi ki a rātou, waihunga waihotanga iho o rātou mā, ah, ko tātou tēnā, tēnā tātou katoa. Uh, I just want to start by, um, for those who didn't catch it, I welcomed you uh, in Māori, but I, I wanted to start by just before I get into this, just reminding you what life was like a hundred years ago. Um, so we get the context of this, because we, we, we often forget that the New Zealand population in 1914, during the First World War, through to 1919, really, when they came home, was only a million people. And Māori, 50,000 in New Zealand at the time, no more than that. Uh, Auckland had a population of 100,000. And uh, all those things we take for granted today, um, if you think about it, what was in here? Supermarkets, computers, most people didn't have access to phones or electricity, uh, only in the big centres. Um, I was thinking about freezers and fridges, flush toilets. Um, you know, I wonder if we brought people from 100 years ago to New Zealand today, whether they think they were in a foreign country. But just, just keep that in mind when I tell you the story of um, Māori, particularly in 20, uh, 1917, what the experience uh, was. This is based on a paper I gave in uh, the week of Anzac at uh, Te Papa for an, an international First World War conference. Um, and um, pretty much just building on it slightly. So in June 1917, uh, as we heard, the New Zealand Pioneer Battalion uh, was in Belgium, involved in the offensive at Messines. I thought just to mark this, uh, this particular day, I would read for you an account of uh, the Māori pioneers' experience on this day 100 years ago. And if you don't know what pioneers do in, uh, in the war zone, they follow the infantry in uh, after the infantry has secured an area and they widen trenches, um, they put out the barbed wire in no man's land. Very dangerous job because you're doing it under shelling. And um, usually it's when you're returning to your lines that uh, you're most exposed. The worst job was carrying the wounded men across no man's land over a ground cratered by shell holes through barbed wire and amidst bursting shells. All the awfulness of a battlefield. All these names I'm about to mention, although they're European names, they're all Māori soldiers. In the early morning mist, Corporal Walter Heaney, helping a stretcher party bring Private Morris back to safety, was in places up to his waist in mud. To add to their ordeal, enemy shells were damaging the communication trench that they were moving along. This meant that the men had to traverse the parapets in places. That means they had to climb out of the trench with the um, stretcher and the wounded person on it and walk along uh, exposed. And as the mist rose, 
they became dangerously exposed. This stretcher party got through safely, though all were fairly exhausted. Just after they arrived, Lieutenant Kaipara rushed in and asked the party to go back for Mr. Eho and his batman Nikora Tetuhi, who was wounded in the leg. As there was no one else, Heaney and his mate went back again with Kaipara. They were fairly beaten, and shells were falling worse than ever. Heaney and his mate picked up Lieutenant Eho, while Kaipara and Corporal Fromm grabbed Tetuhi. Kaipara kept urging them to hurry up but they were so done up they could hardly lift their legs out of the boggy ground. Frequently, they had to put the stretcher down, and then the shells would burst near them, the concussion knocking them over in the mud. We only had about another five yards to go to get into the trench, record from, when Kaipara dropped, hit in the head by a piece of shrapnel from an exploding shell. He was dead. They now had to send for assistance again. It was Heaney's mate who dragged himself back to, the f to get fresh men, while Heaney, so tired, lay down in the mud and cursed himself for being unable to carry on. While all the time Eho's words were ringing in his ears, come on Heaney, come on Heaney. But he was completely knocked up. They eventually got Lieutenant Eho back to their dressing station, but the Tui died on the way. At that stage of the war, the 1,000-strong Pioneer Battalion was made up of a combination of Māori, three-quarters of the battalion, Pākehā and Pacific Island troops. They had almost another 1,000 men stationed at transit camps or in hospitals throughout France and England. These latter were either fresh reinforcements or men recovering from sickness and wounds. The Pacific Island component of the battalion had been reduced to platoon size, that's 50 men, and included soldiers from the Cook Islands, which was the majority, Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, the Gilbert Islands, now Kiribati, and even Norfolk Island. Most of the Pākehā pioneers were from the Otago district. After the Battle of Somme in 1916, the Pioneer Battalion had wintered in northern France near Amontiers. Meanwhile, the casualty list from the Somme had a sobering effect on the Māori members of Parliament and their people in New Zealand. When the war broke out, many Māori were just as eager as Pākehā to volunteer for the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Over 800 Māori were in the territorials, and a number of these were among those New Zealanders who were first to answer the call. In September 1914, when the proposal for a 500-strong Māori contingent was accepted by the British government, Māori enthusiasm only grew. However, after Gallipoli, that fervour waned. This was partly because of the high casualty rate, over 70% of the contingent, and to a certain extent because of the way some of the contingent's Māori officers had been treated by the higher command. In 1916, the survivors of the contingent, plus its reinforcements, were placed into the newly formed Pioneer Battalion for service on the Western Front. This move was expected to reduce the number of Māori casualties. At the Battle of the Somme, it had not. Although the Pioneer Battalion went to the Somme in a combat support role, its duties carried it constantly into the fire zone. 
so that by the time it was withdrawn six weeks later, its losses were over 200, a fifth of its number, killed, wounded or seriously ill. The five Māori members of parliament, and we had an 80-seat parliament in those days with four Māori electorates, who were responsible for recruiting Māori for the battalion, now found more parents dissuading their sons from joining up. For Sir James Carroll and Apirana recruitment had become personal. Carroll's adopted son was killed at Gallipoli, while Ngata had lost one of his closest friends at the Somme, Lieutenant Hinare Kohere, whose untimely death was a shock to all his Ngati Pro kin. Uh, the widower was, a, was from a chiefly family and left behind three uh, young children. Ngata named his son after the officer and composed the recruiting song that paid tribute to Kohere. And it uh, commemorated the deeds of all the Māori soldiers. This song, originally titled A Noble Sacrifice, is still sung today uh, at uh, Te Papa. Uh, when I gave this paper, I sang the song. <laughs> and I'm a historian, not a singer. <laughs> so I realised I'd better get some talent here to give the proper rendition of it. And so we have here from the Ministry for Culture and Heritage its three youngest staff members to give a rendition of a noble sacrifice. So effective was the noble sacrifice among the tribes that it produced reinforcements for three months and a sum of almost £8,000 for the Māori Soldiers Fund. From the outset of the war, Māori had assisted in fundraising for the National Patriotic Movement, and these funds were managed entirely by Pākehā committees. At the beginning of 1917, some Māori leaders thought that a special effort should be made by their people to assist their own returned soldiers. Consequently, a meeting of Māori representatives of the Eastern Māori electorate held at Waiomatatini, which was Ngata's home, it was unanimously decided that a special effort should be made to raise the sum of £25,000, which was to be invested immediately in land and stock so that good interest would accrue from the start. The scheme was unfolded before cabinet ministers who were quite enthused about it and it received their praise, and the organisation was developed and became incorporated under the War Act, its headquarters in Gisborne. Ngata and Carol's wife, Lady Heni Mataro, Sir James Carroll was overseas at the time, were key drivers who established the Memorial Fund, aimed at assisting returned servicemen and their dependents. Every settlement throughout the electorate was allocated a fixed amount as their quota to contribute towards the target.
By the end of 1917, after a year's fundraising, nearly 20,000 pounds had been raised. That's around $2 million in 2017 terms, if we believe the Reserve Bank's inflation calculator. <laughs> but almost wholly on the east coast of the North Island. The, the appeal was then taken on to the larger centres and to other tribal districts. By the war's end, more than £50,000 had been collected. The enthusiastic fundraising effort had its negative consequences. The All Pākehā Gisborne Citizens Defence Committee, for example, which was responsible for administering loans to needy soldiers in the district, decided to exclude Māori soldiers from re receiving relief on the grounds that the Māori Soldiers Fund was larger than their own. This was double banking, fumed one member. The Gisborne Committee had asked the Fund's Council for a £200 donation, in effect a refund of grants already made to Māori soldiers. But this was not possible because the Fund had been raised for a special purpose. The Council's Secretary-Treasurer, Captain William Tutapuaki-Pitt, appeared before the Gisborne Committee asking that it rescind its new policy. Māori had subscribed generously to the, to the Defence Fund in the three and a half years since it had been set up, he argued, and Māori soldiers were therefore entitled to benefit from it. Meanwhile, the Māori Soldiers Fund was used to purchase three farms. The farms, however, struggled in an economic downturn during the early 20s. The farms suffered huge losses and by 1925 one of the stations had been abandoned. The remaining assets, approximately £12,000, were vested in the Māori trustee. When these assets disappeared during the 1930s, the Māori trustee, having regard for the social and sentimental value of the fund, kept it afloat with loans. Only when wool prices rose sharply after the Second World War did the fund get back in the black. But it was not until 1952 that the first grants were made to needy veterans and their families. In the central North Island, Māori owners, also responding to the call to assist returned servicemen, did so by gifting land. At a meeting of owners at Taihawe, 20,000 acres of the Ōwhaoko block was offered by some of its Ngāti Tūwharetō, Ngāti Tamakōpiri and Ngāti Fiti Kōpeka owners. Sir Douglas will be pleased that I gave all those names um, after what we've learned in the Taihape Inquiry District. And uh, they also suggested that 100,000 acres in the Kaimanawa block be set aside for Pākehā soldiers. These, offices, these offers were held over so absent owners could have a say. When the MP for the Western Māori electorate, Māori Pōmare, met with Tūreiti Te Heuhe and other iwi representatives at Waihi, the Ōwhaoko gift was increased by 5,000 acres and by the end of 1917 it had exceeded 35,000 acres. The Ōwhaoko gift was given legal status in October 1918, but Ngāti Tūwharetō soon found themselves protesting against government moves to take more of their land. Native Minister Herries had proclaimed that soldiers would be resettled on certain Māori blocks south of Lake Taupo, but the owners were refusing to give these up, asking instead for assistance to make the land productive. By the time the Māori Pioneer Battalion arrived in Auckland in April 1919, 
the government had acquired 500,000 acres of Māori land for soldier settlement and was considering taking another 700,000 acres. It was the Native Land Amendment Act 1917 that enabled the gifting of Māori land for settlement by discharged Māori soldiers. Ngata had stated, we do not want to sponge upon the government for, from the Crown lands for our Māori soldiers. We want as far as possible to make provision for them out of their own lands. In practice, such provision was limited to the gift of the Ōwhāko block and the purchase of the three farms using the Māori soldiers' war fund. A few Māori soldiers entered the ballots for the government, the government settlement schemes, infuriating some Pākehā. Māori soldiers applying for land in North Auckland, for example, provoked outrage in the local farming community, which enlisted the aid of their local member to ensure that the national endowment land in question was retained for the settlement of European soldiers. When Minister of Lands D.H. Guthrie tried to set aside the 560-acre Hoskins estate between Makatu and Matata in the Bay of Plenty for Māori soldiers, he faced a barrage of protests from settlers and returned Parker soldiers alike. A large deputation met the minister on the property and pointed out that had they known that the block was to be set aside for Māori, then returned soldiers would not have gone to the expense of viewing it. Their real objection was that Māori were not good farmers. The chairman of the Tauranga County Council claimed that if Māoris were put together on the block, it would undoubtedly go back, while the Western Bay of Plenty RSA president believed it would be far better to mix them with the whites. The member for Rotorua, F.F. Hockley, told the minister that the block was of such a nature that the Māori character was not calculated to keep it up to its present high condition. It would be wiser to select a different class of country which would not spoil if neglected. Captain Verko, a highly decorated Māori officer who had served with both the Pioneers and the Auckland Infantry Battalion, was also present. He pointed out that so far, something like 3,000 Pākehā soldiers had been settled on land, but only about a half a dozen Māori. The reason seemed obvious. Māori were outnumbered in the ballots by 100 to 1. Verko, who was now working as an interpreter in Parliament, had proposed to the Minister that small blocks be set aside for Māori ex-servicemen. It must be remembered, he said, that when the Pākehā acquired land by lease or purchase, money was available to him. But money was not available for Māori, and that is a bar against them improving it. Verko could also point out blocks of land in the district held by Pākehā that had not been improved. Eventually, under continuing pressure from Hockley and Harrys and facing letter-writing campaigns from interest groups, Guthrie divided the Hoskins estate between Māori and Pākehā ex-servicemen. Uh, historian Ashley Gould... Ashley's not here, is he? I'll tell you what he said then. <laughs> ..has found that at least 30 Māori discharged soldiers acquired farms under the government settlement schemes. This was about 1% of all Māori soldiers compared with the 10% of Pākehā helped onto farms. The government's policy of providing repatriation assistance specifically for Māori soldiers, he said, was piecemeal and aimed at tribes with influential spokesmen. As part of the fundraising effort towards the Māori Soldiers Fund, 
Apitanangata utilised Māori entertainers to inspire tribal contributions. From 1917, he engaged his friend and composer, Paraire Tomoana, who, along with Whenua, Whenua Kura Nikera and their Hawke's Bay performers, the Kahungunu entertainers, uh, introduced several new forms of the poi dance. Songs like Tomoana's Come Where Duty Calls, which, and uh, Blue Eyes, which followed the trend of putting Māori words to popular English songs, were soon being sung in every Māori community. You know, until I started researching the First World War, we used to sing those songs all the time. I had no clue it had anything to do with the war. So it just shows after 100 years, um, if you don't keep teaching the meaning of songs, how easily it's lost. Ngata had first seen the Kahungunu entertainers perform at the opening of Haungarea Marae at Pakipaki in 1916. In 1917, he arranged for the group to entertain at concerts held at Wairoa, Taranaki, Hastings, uh, in the Wellington and Auckland town halls. The concerts and fundraising hui not only accelerated the development of the modern action song, but it also generated inter-iwi visits at a regularity not often seen before the war. Uh, most waiata in those days were poi, and so the the sharing of songs between iwi made them popular a lot faster because people were moving around the country. And um, I suppose a bit like the Matatini today, you have to come up with new ideas when uh, you're visiting other tribal groups. And that's how we get the modern action song developed to the state it's in today. Meanwhile, overseas, there were sufficient Māori reinforcements to fill all companies in the Pioneer Battalion. So on the 1st of September 1917, the pioneers officially became the New Zealand Māori Battalion, with pioneer in brackets. 
General Godley, fulfilling a commitment he had made to the Māori Recruiting Committee in early 1916. The original hat and collar badges of the Māori contingent replaced the pioneers' ones. So you find when you go to the cemeteries over in, uh, in Europe today, uh, you see on the headstones Māori, New Zealand Māori Battalion, because they're using uh, the name that they took on in September 1917. Most of the Pākehā and the battalion were transferred to infantry units. There were still 50 Pākehā with the battalion at war's end. Just in time for the brutal fighting, these men were transferred out just in time for the brutal fighting that took place at Passchendaele. Lieutenant Colonel King, the most recent commander of the pioneers, was among them and like so many others, was killed in the dis disastrous attack on Bellevue Spur. In December 1917, the Pacific Island platoon entrained to Marseilles, and in the new year was shipped to Egypt, where they joined the Rarotongan Company that was based in Egypt. The fact that Māori, with a total population of only 50,000, could actually maintain a battalion at the front was to have ramifications in the Second World War. When Ngata and Māori leaders pushed for an infantry battalion to be included in the Second New Zealand Expeditionary Force in 1939, the Māori population had almost doubled. So it could not be argued that the race would be unable to maintain reinforcements for an all-Māori battalion, which was an argument that had been used up until 1917. Keeping the battalion at full strength required a constant stream of Māori reinforcements so that in 1917 the various iwi contributions were being looked at seriously. Iwi that had supplied few volunteers were those from regions where the conflicts of the 1860s had been most bitter and who, as a result, had endured the confiscation of large tracts of their tribal estate, especially those in Waikato Tainui and Taranaki. Nursing an inherited sense of grievance against the Crown Represented as they saw it by the government and Pākehā generally, these often destitute and aggrieved communities were in no mood to appreciate the obligation to serve abroad in the armed forces. In June 1917, the government, in an ill-advised move, decided to apply conscription to one electoral district, Western Māori, of which the Tainui tribes were a part. Ballots were drawn from eligible men of Waikato and Ngāti Maniopoto, both Tainui Iwi, and purposely included some members of the Māori king's family. It was hoped that their compliance would encourage would-be dissenters to follow their example. When none of the men presented themselves at the recruiting offices, they were rounded up and forcibly taken to camp. Their refusal to serve was not readily understood and the sequel was the imprisonment at Mount Eden of a dozen or more of the most committed dissenters. Applying the policy to one electoral district was a mistake and resulted in only a handful of Waikato Tainui men ever being put into uniform. Pierce O'Connor, in his review of Māori recruitment in the First World War, noted that by 1919, only 74 Māori conscripts had gone to camp out of a total of 552 men who had been called up. None had been sent overseas, 111 had been arrested, 
and warrants for nearly 100 more were still in the hands of the police. A less obvious positive outcome also resulted from the whole conscription experience. After the war, the government began, for the first time, to seriously consider the long-standing grievances around land loss, denial of access to resources, and the associated poverty which had underlain resistance to enlistment. Despite the many petitions that Waikato and others had placed before the government in the years before the war, it was Waikato's determined and public resistance to overseas service that brought about a willingness on the part of the government to remove the obstacles that had made them and other aggrieved tribes unwilling participants in the war effort. Despite the commendation, the condemnation Waikato faced from all quarters, military authorities, police, Pākehā and even Māori, their sons who were willing to suffer in prison for their beliefs had unknowingly helped set the government's agenda for the post-war period. How to address the injustices of the past, especially the seriously excessive raupatu, preoccupied Māori MPs and ministers alike in the post-war period for the next 20 years. Kia ora.